My name is Carla Wobenhorst. I've been a fixture in Guelph these last 17 or so years. Uh, I had a ministry at Westminster St. Paul's in the, in the North End. And I've uh, been a frequent guest at, at Court Wright over the years. I've gotten to know some of your youth, in particular through leading the Profession of Faith class. And uh, I'm grateful to Alex, who's a friend as well as a colleague, for uh, inviting me on these um, times of sharing worship and scripture with you. Today, I've um, chosen to look at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, which records the death of Moses and the final encounter that he has with God on Mount Nebo. Uh, Alex has had me, uh, or through Diane, through the intermoderator Peter, I've been out to court, um, Rockwood preaching the last little while and have been doing um, a series of mountains of scripture with them. So Mount Nebo is another in this series. It's not a direct comment on the leadership transition which Courtright is about to undergo. Um, Alex is only sick today, not dying, but... Uh, <laughs> um, anyway, this is... Uh, is the word of God, and we pray that the Holy Spirit will open it to us. Uh, I'm going to invite you to speak the words in italics as we read this scripture uh, and do the first part of this reading responsively. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, son of Nun. I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God, without deceit, just and upright is he. They made me jealous with what is no God, provoked me with their idols. So I will make them jealous with what is no people, provoke them with a foolish nation. Vengeance is mine and recompense, for the time their foot shall slip, because the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. Praise, O heavens, his people. Worship him, all you gods. When Moses had finished reciting all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words that I am giving in witness against you today. Give them as a command to your children, so that they may diligently observe all the words of this law. This is no trifling matter for you, but rather your very life. Through it you may live long in the land that you are crossing over the Jordan to possess. 
On that very day, the Lord addressed Moses as follows. Ascend this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, across from Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites for a possession. You shall die there on the mountain that you ascend, and shall be gathered to your kin, as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor, and was gathered to his kin, because both of you broke faith with me among the Israelites at the waters of Meribath Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, by failing to maintain my holiness among the Israelites. Although you may view the land from a distance, you shall not enter it, the land that I am giving to the Israelites. So after he had given a blessing to the Israelites, to each of the tribes of Jacob, Moses went up the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him the whole land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, the Negeb and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. The Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab at the Lord's command. He was buried in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his burial place to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His sight was unimpaired, and his vigor had not abated. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the period of mourning for Moses was ended. Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him, and the Israelites obeyed him, doing as the Lord had commanded Moses. Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unequaled for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants and his entire land, and for all the mighty deeds and all the terrifying displays of power that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. God tempers judgment with mercy. We meet Moses here at the end of Deuteronomy, at the end of his ministry, as a very old man, 120 years old. And God has shown him great mercy. It says his sight was unimpaired and his vigor had not abated. We know this to be true because God asks him, a man of 120, to hike up the top of Mount Nebo, so vigor unabated, and there to use his unimpaired sight to survey the whole of the valleyscape below, the land God has promised to give his people, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
God's goodness to Moses at the end of his life consists of more than unabated vigor and unimpaired eyesight and the chance to glimpse that toward which his hope and lifelong labor have tended, the land of promise. God has also endorsed Moses in the eyes of the people and given him a great reputation. Earlier in the book of Exodus, in the book of Numbers, the people were critical of Moses' leadership and they were inclined to disrespect him. At this point, they know that there is no one who has the relationship with God that Moses has. He is God's personal friend. And the epitaph which is written for him is, Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Moses is in a good place, carried there on eagles' wings of God, and he dies in that state of grace. But within God's great mercy and favor shown to Moses, there's also a note of judgment. Moses is allowed to see the promised land, but not to enter it that honor of bringing the people into the land to conquer and enjoy it will belong not to Moses, but to his right-hand man, Joshua. And we don't have to guess at God's reason for withholding from Moses that great honor. Deuteronomy states it very clearly in verse 51 and 52 of chapter 32. Both you and your brother Aaron broke faith with me among the Israelites at the waters of Meribeth Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, by failing to maintain my holiness among the Israelites. Although you may view the land from a distance, you shall not enter it, the land that I am giving to the Israelites. So what is this incident that is referred to at Meribeth Kadesh, which had placed such a sin blot on the otherwise stainless record of Moses' godly leadership? We can read what happened there in the book of Numbers chapter 20. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 8, the Lord told Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. In Numbers 20, verse 9 to 11, tell us Moses' response. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out on the community and their livestock drank. The Lord was displeased with Moses' actions. Because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land that I give them. So sentence is passed right there and then. Moses knows that he will not have the honor of bringing the people into the land. What he does not know is that he will be allowed by God's mercy to have a glimpse of the land at the end of his life. But why such a severe sentence? 
Why did God feel his holiness was impugned among the Israelites by what Moses and Aaron did? First of all, Moses disobeyed a direct command from God. God had commanded Moses to speak to the rock. Instead, Moses struck the rock with his staff. And it's different than if he had been disobeying God in private, which would, of course, be wrong too. But here he is standing before Israel as their leader and teaching the whole people by his example that God can speak and he can adjust the instructions as he sees fit. He can replace God's judgment with his own. And that is the sense in which the holiness of God is impugned. But behind the disobedience of Moses is a sin of doubt or distrust, which God names in Numbers 20, verse 12. Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy. The occasion recorded in Numbers chapter 20 is not the first time that God provides a gracious stream of water in the desert. Probably Moses was remembering how he had gotten water from the rock in Exodus chapter 17. On that earlier occasion, God had told him, strike the rock. And now there was a change of instructions. God, of course, is free to change his instructions. God is a living God, and his instructions for today might not be the same as his instructions for yesterday. But when we get more focused on the result than on the God who gave the result, we try to do again and again what worked for us before. This reduces God to a formula. And it is the formula that we put our trust in rather than in God. In that way, the formula becomes an idol. And idols are appealing because at the same time that we have to serve them, we can also manage them. In idol religion, our salvation ultimately comes from ourselves. We don't have to trust God for it, the dynamic, living, sovereign, relational, unmanageable God. I think a lot of our churches know the temptation of trusting in a formula that has yielded results in the past, rather than in placing a personal trust in a God who is always out ahead of us and doing a new thing. Some churches got results in the 1950s by becoming a home for a chapter of the Boy Scouts. Suddenly, men who were somewhat peripheral to the life of the congregation became present and involved as scout leaders. And the church was full on scout Sundays with the kind of youth who were already committed to being reverent and good citizens. And for a while, it was a great alliance. Fifty years later, it became apparent that both scouts, troops, and Sunday schools were feeling the strain of the cultural shift away from joining up for things. But still, in the visioning conversations of many churches, predictably, someone will suggest, let's get a scout troop back in here. That'll be the shot in the arm that this church needs. Or in the 1990s, some churches got results with the Alpha program, and so they have continued to offer the Alpha program 
despite the fact that it does not really attract people from beyond the congregation any longer. And people in the church are sometimes heard to say that they take it every year, and every year they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Yay! (laughs) I have considerable respect for both the scouting movement and for the Alpha Course, but these are tools that God has used at particular times. Even if we refine our ways of offering these ministries to a high degree, and become known for them, and even if we have gotten some of our best results through them, they are no substitute for listening to God and trusting God to lead us in the here and now. God wants us to have a personal faith, not a mechanistic faith. And so he comes to us with a living word and not a formula. The detail is also remembered in Numbers chapter 20 that Moses not only replaced God's instruction to speak to the rock with the action of striking the rock, but he struck the rock twice. Why twice? Having trusted in the formula that had yielded the desired result before, rather than in God who told him what to do. Moses doesn't go back to God when the old formula fails him. If he had asked, why isn't this working, it would have been a step in the right direction because he would have been treating God as his relational partner. Instead, he thinks that getting, out of, that getting water out of that rock is all up to him, and he will get water out of it if he has to beat the thing to death. Again, we don't have to speculate that this is where Moses' mind is because his attitude of self-sufficiency is betrayed by the words that he says and which Numbers records. Must we, referring to Aaron and himself, bring you water out of this rock? Moses thinks it's all up to him. He actually thinks that having the formula, he should be able to lead and to save the people of God without reference to God. That would make him a magician or a priest of idol religion, not a man who walks with God as a friend. At the time of the Protestant Reformation, the Reformed commentators saw the way the priesthood of the Catholic Church practiced the Mass as a reflection of the sin of Moses at Meribeth Kadesh. Their critique was that the Mass was being practiced mechanistically, as if God had given to the priesthood a means of releasing divine grace every time Christ was re-sacrificed by them in the Mass, as if that great gift lay within human management, and as if it could be dispensed by so violent and formulaic a means as a repetitious re-crucifixion of Christ who was physically available in such a magical way within the communion bread. The reformers just found this whole idea repugnant because it made any direct relationship with God unnecessary. All you needed was a relationship with the church, which administered the magic formula for sin removal at the agency of human hands. 500 years after the Reformation, I'm not sure that we are any further away from the sinful and doubt-driven tendencies of Moses on our Protestant side of the fence. 
It's a human tendency to hit the rock, to hit it again and again, instead of speaking to the rock. It's a human tendency to believe it is up to us to provide, according to some formula that God once gave, our own means of life and salvation. Because speaking to God, being in relationship with God face to face, is scary. Things get real. And it's a relationship where we cannot be in control. But it's also where beyond judgment, mercy is to be found. Speak to the rock. In this symbolic language, the rock can only ever be once stricken. Christ can only ever be once crucified. But what do we do with our need? And particularly with our need for forgiveness, for ongoing forgiveness after that once and for all gift has been given. The formula cannot be repeated, but we can continue to plead the benefits of the cross before God in repentant prayer. In other words, we can and we should and we must speak to the rock. When we are in need, or worse, when we are in need of God's forgiveness for some kind of sin, what we mostly do is avoid God. And we are in need and in sin all of the time, and so avoiding God becomes a kind of second nature. We can even make of the church a refuge for God avoidance, because religion gives us a formula, gives us Christian-y things to do, that we can easily convert into the currency of our own self-directed amends-making, our own quid pro quo, the righteousness we accumulate to offer to God so he will give us what we need or overlook what we have done. Instead, all that God wants from us is for us to turn our face toward him, to speak direct words of address to him, to exist, as a thou in our life and not an it. And to trust him to do the rest of all that needs to be done to keep this a relationship of grace and favor. Here at the end of Moses' life, God wants to meet with Moses on the mountain one more time. It is not Mount Sinai where they meet, the mountain of law, the mountain covered with smoke and thunder. It is Mount Nebo, the mountain which affords the view of the promised land beneath. From there could be seen the date groves of the Angedi oasis, for the honey spoken of in the Bible comes not from bees, but from dates. And the herds of the Canaanites grazing contentedly the herds that would give the milk to go with the honey. Moses can see it all. From the top of Mount Nebo, Moses is close enough to see that all the good things God has promised his people are for real. The doubt which lies at the root of every sin that imputes, impugns God's holiness has no place on that mountain. The good news that God can be trusted is no longer subject to doubt because here on Mount Nebo, things believed in have at last become things seen. Faith has given way to sight. 
Among the good things God has promised is a greater gift than the milk and the honey. It is that God would take his people out of bondage and into freedom. He would bear them away on eagles' wings and take them to himself. He would be their God and they would be his people, living together in Emmanuel's land. For that to happen, sin has had to be judged and done away. But from the vantage point here on Mount Nebo, Moses can see how that promise too has been accomplished by God, who can be trusted as the God who saves. Moses knows this personally from the way that God has dealt with him. For what has God done? God has passed sentence on his sin. It is dealt with and not avoided, but yet here he stands, in life and in glory, with God addressing him in kindness. Old friend, come up Mount Nebo to meet me one last time. I have something pretty incredible I want to show you. God tempers judgment with mercy. And what Moses may not know for sure until now is that the mercy outweighs the judgment. Judgment is within the context of the mercy. The story God is working out in bringing his people out of slavery and into freedom, the freedom of Emmanuel's land, is not derailed by Moses' sin. Taken in the long view, Moses' role in that great story of God is not even a negative one. He is a hero, knowing great blessing and enjoying a great reputation even in his own lifetime. At the end of his days, the sentence which has been declared by God upon his sin still stands, but the sting of it is taken out by the fact that he and God are so clearly friends. Old man, come up Mount Nebo to meet me one last time. I have something pretty incredible I want to show you. I myself have had the privilege of standing at the top of Mount Nebo, which is in the country of Jordan. Not only is there an incredible view down and out over the country that spreads beneath, but there is a piece of modern sculpture there that draws your eye upward. It's a sculpture of the brazen serpent referred to in Numbers 21 and John chapter 3. I had to ponder a bit why that particular image was chosen by the Franciscans who have custodianship of the site. I mean, the story of the brazen serpent does feature among the stories of Moses' wilderness wandering with the people. And it happened somewhere in the ancient territory of Moab near where Mount Nebo is. But it is hardly the central story of Moses' ministry. One might have expected a sculpture of him extending his staff over the parted Red Sea waters, or a sculpture of him with the tablets of the Ten Commandments. But no, what is referenced in this story of God first afflicting his people with a plague of poisonous serpents in the camp in judgment for their constant skeptical complaining and then providing them with the gracious means of healing through the snake that Moses fashioned from bronze and set on a pole for the people to gaze upon. This is what is remembered on Mount Nebo. 
In John's gospel, this healing serpent is likened to Christ. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. So upon reflection, I saw that it was the perfect monument to stand in a place where the great lawgiver of the Old Testament gave witness to the gospel, the good news that it is possible to stand in friendship and favor with God because God offers us that. Beyond and despite the reach of judgment and the fact of sin, he offers us the chance to be with him in his own country, even as Jesus became Emmanuel, God with us in ours. This is, in fact, the hope that we look up to as the greatest promise of our promised land. Not just the milk and the honey. Not just the cessation of the conflict and the struggle. But the ease of relationship with a God we no longer feel we have to avoid. But who we can run to as the dearest of friends. Old friend, come up Mount Nebo to meet me one last time. I have something pretty incredible I want to show you. But look not only down and out, look up. For in looking up to Christ, you have been healed. And in meeting the divine eye, you will see that judgment has been exhausted. But mercy remains. This is the peaceable prospect of Emmanuel's land. Amen.